I am the master, and you will obey me. Listen to Dan Hadley on Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast, or face the consequences. for Type 40, your Doctor Who podcast from the Spacebook for the Fandom Podcast Network with me, Dan Hartley, Birmingham's King of the Geeks, designated driver, mouth runner, but a nice, good and keen listener. Here's where we deliver Doctor Who conversation, facts, views, banter and who knows what fit for marking this 60th anniversary year on our free speaking, big thinking show for everyone. Whatever decade or century you started watching, reading, or listening along to those ongoing adventures of our hero, Doctor Who. We talk about it all on this show, eventually, <laughs> and there could even be a few laughs along the way. So come and step into our TARDIS and share this journey together here with us on Type 40. This one's positively packed with faces, or more accurately, voices one or two you'll absolutely know and perhaps one you're more accustomed to to hear the words of put in other actors mouths and and put before readers too in books and audio drama all that's coming right up get ready for a trip back to the 80s and the 90s and the early noughties actually i think we're everywhere i'm all over the place <laughs> as always and we are everywhere as befits a doctor who podcast all will be revealed in a moment. In the meantime, if you'd like to do some real-time travelling of your own, each and every edition of this show, past, present and future, is just a tap or two away on the device of your choice, but only if you know where to look. There's masses of great conversations, reviews, previews, interviews, geek outs and deep dives with all our regulars and some pretty awesome guests. In fact, we know there's something for every fan over at type40.podbean.com. We'll about that later on as well as a couple of minutes, as always, where we will make contact with that matrix of all knowledge that we call the Fandom Podcast Network. Listen out for that. Be ready to make a few mental notes. Right, I think that's enough drum roll, even for me. What's the definition of an historical figure? Ask the average person to name some and you're going to get your Winston Churchills, Florence Nightingales, maybe a Napoleon or two, and certainly a plethora of William Shakespeare's. Now, maddeningly, <laughs> to the families and friends of us Doctor Who fans, we name and certainly talk about people associated with the show who have since passed on just as regularly and any chance we get. We're a, uh, a strange breed. Or maybe not, because whether it's uh, George Best or C.S. Lewis or David Bowie or whoever else, the truth is, as, as the, di the dictionary says, in fact, that the actual definition of an historical figure is simply one whose deeds exerted a significant impact on other people's lives and consciousness. And as producer of more classic Doctor Who than anyone else, John Nathan Turner, 
who was uh, on the show between 1980 and 1989. Wow. Well, there's no bigger a figure in Doctor Who than him. And, and John's been the subject of two high-profile yet very different books just this last few years and a feature-length documentary. And now a UK studios add to that legacy in yet another unique way with a completely original scripted drama penned by someone who was a personal friend of the late producer. And it's just been released. Me and Him and Who offers a poignant and timely study of John's later years. And I'm happy to say that on this edition of Type 40, I'm joined not only by uh, Stephen Wyatt, the writer, but actor Christopher Gard, who's playing John Nathan Turner, and producer Barnaby Eaton-Jones. They're all here to tell us some more. Gentlemen, welcome to Type 40. Hello. Hello, hello. hello. That was very voice artisty there, Barnaby. A very throaty one, yeah. So, Stephen, I'm going it's to start with you line. if... <laughs> I'll start with you, if I may, because as Doctor Who fans, of course, we've seen your name on the credits of two of the most idiosyncratic stories of the later years of the classic show. But the truth of the matter is they're, they're just part of a career for you, aren't they? In writing for TV, theatre, and crucially in this case, radio and audio drama. This is a completely different kind of story that you're bringing to our ears this time. I think a lot of people are going to find this irresistible, but what's the genesis of me and him and who? It's quite simple, really. I was on holiday with my partner and he said to me, why don't you do something about John Nathan Turner? And I thought, well, I'm sure it's been done. I mean, the must have been done, you know. My first stop, I talked to Richard Marson because I knew, although I knew uh, John very well, I need, I, was, I had to have Richard Marson's book behind me because it's the definitive book about JMT and it has so much research in it. And he basically said, there's enough, nobody else is doing this at the moment and gave me his blessing. Indeed, he's been incredibly generous and supportive throughout the whole process. And then I emailed Barnaby. He immediately expressed interest. And during our discussions, we realized it made more sense as a piece if it became a two-hander. So it involved not just JNT himself, but also his long-term partner, Gary Downey. Well, that's that was the starting point, really. Had you got a pre-established working relationship then between yourself and Barnaby, Stephen? Not really, had we? We've, we've, we've talked about lots of projects and passed the time <laughs> day on Facebook and things like that. Uh, but I just mm. knew that one, there's a very good chance that he would be interested. And two, he's the sort of person, if he's interested, he'll get it done. You do seem to be a man who, who has this track record of getting things done you've been very prolific over the last few years haven't you with a whole range of audio dramas so when Stephen came to you with this project were you initially very interested in this or could you could did you understand it were you aware of John Nathan Turner well uh, the greatest show in the galaxy which Stephen wrote for for Doctor Who the TV series is, is my one of my favorite uh, Doctor Who stories so I knew of Stephen you know from when I was really young um and then it's lovely I think the great thing about Doctor Who is you end up being a fan of lots of other things because you yeah. you follow an actor or you follow a writer or you follow a director and you end up you know your your vision expands exponentially because of of dog two which is lovely um and so so we had i had commissioned a, a script from stephen just before because i i adored a book that he wrote and i said we should turn that into an audio and so he very kindly uh did that uh but then because just for whatever reasons we haven't quite got uh, that one into production mm -hmm. Um, then obviously this one seemed a no-brainer, and it was um, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, John Nathan Turner's a such a <clears throat> massive character, and someone who, <laughs> for me, uh, deserves reappraisal all the time because um, he got a lot of stick at the time, but he kept the show on the air. And I mean, it's quite amazing, really, what he did. You know, to have that two-hander between him and his partner, which I think most Doctor Who fans will know, Gary was a sort of. Um, also a big part of the the relationship so um it's um yeah it was it was a really really good idea so i just thought well we should get this done really <laughs> you're you sound as as driven as jnt was you're certainly very industrious but this is the thing isn't it uh, because over the years over the decades and i think that obviously the certain the books that have come out and uh, the, the showman the recent documentary film have have done a lot to expand our understanding of, of jnt and his life and his work but with projects like this, I suppose you can peel some of the myth 
away and focus on a, on a real human being because he was driven, wasn't he? He was a complicated man. He was very uh, energetic and strident and, and very funny, but was also has this reputation of being quite, you know, for as playful as he was, as quite petulant too, and a very flawed person, as are we all. Because the interesting thing, or in red, the difficult thing is he was all those things you said, but at 43, he was made redundant to the BBC and all he had to his credit was Doctor Who. He be, remained dependent on Doctor Who, you know, that he was doing conventions, he was doing shows, he was doing signings. And so I think the interesting thing of what we've tried to do is to look at what happened to him after Doctor Who and how he's, he and Gary are trying to make sense of their lives and, and they both become seriously ill. And so that was the perspective that we wanted to look at. And uh, John never totally lost that extraordinary brilliance. I mean, I've got an email from, from him three months before he died in which he's talking yeah. about, I'm going to do this, we're going to do that. And my treatment is going well. He never quite gave up, but it was a huge, huge struggle and an increasingly difficult struggle for both of them. My mum and dad lived very close to the Salt Dean. John, being a sweetheart, would send slices of cake back for my mum and dad, and this was all very, very nice. And then gradually the atmosphere changed, and no tea and cakes. It, it was just vodka and orange, and literally just vodka and orange. I mean, I went over once for tea. Five hours later, all I'd been offered was vodka and orange, and I was feeling rather ill, to say the least, and I sort of begged a cup of coffee just to get me, because my parents were no longer living there, to get back on the bus to get myself home. And I just couldn't keep up with this. I mean, I like a drink, but this was really like... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, to look at a project like, the, like this, as you say, a, a two-hander, it's a lot to, in, to put into an hour's worth of scripted drama anyway, I, I would think, to take your experiences and the lives of, of two men and their relationship, their intimate relationship, in a, an appropriate way. I, I, I would imagine, Barnaby, that the, the choosing of, of the right actors for both parts was essential. And that's why I want to bring in, in Christopher here, Christopher Gard. Now, Doctor Who fans will recognise you as a cast member of Stephen's second story, wouldn't they? The, uh, Barnaby mentioned it earlier on, The Greatest Show in the Galaxy. You played very, very, Bellwood, didn't you, in that? I, b I believe so, yeah. <laughs> but it was a memorable tragic character wasn't he christopher and one that that really has stayed with the the viewers but again this was just one role in a very long and varied career that you've had as a singer a musician an artist and an actor isn't it yeah i mean i was born into a family of actors writers one or two musicians hanging around the edges and the house when i was young was full of people like Everyone from Richard Briers to Flanders and Swan to Dennis Quilly to... I'm just dropping names now. It was also full of people who weren't famous at all. And, good names, though, uh, Chris, good names. You know, we were a self-employed, busy household and loads of animals as well. But, yeah, you know, I, I played um, David Copperfield on telly when I was 12. I, I wasn't a child actor, really, because it was just something that came up. That character was played when he was older by a 26-year-old Ian McKellen. Uh, which uh, was interesting. Nobody kind of really knew who he was. He was very good in it. And that was the beginning for me. I'd never really decided to be an actor and I still haven't really. <laughs> I write, I've just written a book. This is why I worked with Barnaby. I've written a sort of kaleidoscopic, uh, eccentric sort of memoir about particularly my early life and growing up. And uh, that's how, how we became connected. Barnaby immediately sort of got it. A so creatively it was, led life, Chris. Well, yes and no, you know. I mean, it also includes running on football pitches at Craven Cottage and getting twin rover tickets and generally misbehaving. I mean, the, I think the main thing has been, it's like most people's lives, I suppose, it, it's never really been very easy to foresee. I remember they asked me a question at a little convention we did for The Greatest Show a few years ago. And somebody asked me, after all these years, were you expecting all to be here again together to which i said yes <laughs> <laughs> because that's the nature of doctor who you know you kind of you never know quite where you're going to land next i had no idea that this is what was going to happen with doctor who i said you know i did it i wrote these two shows about 
35 years ago now, Doctor Who ended. I really thought that was that. And it's, it, to me, it's quite extraordinary what has, how many projects have come up about this. I mean, it won't, it won't go away, will it? It just it won't go. I'm not, I'm not, I, I've ceased to complain or grumble. I mean, <laughs> surely there are more important things in my life than Doctor Who, and I've now accepted it'll be on my gravestone. The same with me, Stephen. You know, I mean, I, I as you may recall, I, I did your classic serials on telly and played leads opposite, you know, considerable people. And, you know, you're on the front of magazines and all that type of stuff, and nobody remembers any of it. They do want you to sign Doctor Who photographs. Stephen, uh, you wrote for uh, Casualty and the House of Elliot on television, didn't you? And you've, you've done lots of theatre and radio work. I mean, it's been a big part of your career, I understand. And Chris, we spoke earlier on about the various hats that you've worn. You've been in so many, so many TV shows that were part of the fabric of British courts. You were in Lovejoy, Casualty again, Memoirs of Sherlock Holmes, Treasure Island with Brian Blessed, all these shows. But you're no stranger to voice work either, are you? And, and so when it comes to this particular project and when you were approached about it, were you very interested initially or did it have to have a certain, a certain combination of, of qualities for you to say, yes, I'll, I'll do that script? Well, no, I've, I've always liked voice work. I mean, I, I, partly because you don't have to learn any lines. Which make, I, I, I like, I like <laughs> voice work and filming days when all you have to do is ride around on horses and look, and look kind of intense and meaningful, but not necessarily say anything. So from that perspective, I like it. I also, you know, I've always enjoyed, I did quite a lot of Jack and Norris back in the day. And I've always enjoyed reading to my kids. I like just getting the words off the page and making them come to life. So, uh, yeah, I genuinely enjoy audio. Yeah. yeah, obviously, because, you know, I knew John when he was an AFM. I knew him when he was putting on a, it was some show in the West End. He was a humble AFM and he managed to get all these kind of big stars into this. It was a pantomime, I think, at a West End theatre. And I'm thinking, how is he doing this? And it was the drive and the kind of playful, willful, impish, I will not be moved attitude that he brought to so many things. And he got this huge show on. So I, and I thought, who is this? Who is this chap who seemingly believes he can make anything happen? I think that was what he, what he brought to who as well. He had this defining, yeah, willfulness. <laughs> he didn't so, like the word no. So the combination of someone such as yourself, Chris, who'd, who'd known John for considerably longer since before he was on Doctor Who, and then uh, you, Stephen, who remained his friend, it sounds like, until, until his death. So in, in many ways, Barnaby, is this a, a gift to you to come across an actor like Chris here who, who didn't, just, didn't just work with the man once, who actually personally knew him as well, they had a relationship. Did you go to Chris uh, with an idea about how you wanted him to, to play it, or was it somewhere you reached between the two of you? It was really um, fortuitous because obviously Chris mentioned his uh, memoir uh, and it just happened to be coinciding with obviously Stephen saying, hey, we should do this uh, audio about John Nathan Turner. And then, you know, once you read the script and you, you know, you can hear John Nathan Turner and Gary's voices quite clearly in it. And then you've got to try and match that to actors that can bring it to life. And it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, a pitch perfect vocal impersonation. No. And sometimes that's worse because you can hear you know, somebody impersonating rather than somebody actually giving the character what they need. Uh, and so uh, Chris just came to mind straight away, sent him the script. He was over the moon, uh, you know, to be able to do it. Uh, and he said the very same thing. He won't do, I'm not going to do an impersonation. I'm going to be the man rather than, you know, be the exact voice, um, which I th which worked incredibly well. And it was then it was difficult to find somebody that, that he could play across. And I just happened to be, again, very lucky that the chap called Peter Noble, um, who I'd connected with on Twitter, who's a, a brilliant um, voice actor, he's actually from South Africa. And so when I talked to him about the background of Gary, the first thing he said was, um, I, I instantly know that character. I know who that person is because I was around, you know, these ballet dancers in South Africa and stuff. And um, I know that world, which was brilliant. So, you know, it, it was an easy job for me because once you've cast two people, you know, that can do that. Uh, and, and Stephen's writing is, you know, very easy to bring off the page because it's so delicious to be able to act it. Then um, then it's, you know, I don't really have to do that much after then. It's just, you know, getting it recorded and, and, and getting it edited. I mean, it's just, it, it's a bit of alchemy sometimes where you just happen to have all the right things in the same place and, and it ends up being, you know, more than the sum of its parts, which is which is brilliant. And, and that's hopefully what happened with this. I hope hopefully when people 
listen to it, um, that's what they'll they'll feel. I often say on this show, Barnaby, how how our connections as fans of shows such as, as Doctor Who or Robin of Sherwood or any of the other things that you're familiar with, they can often be very, very personal because they've been formed in our own family homes through the television set. <laughs> That's simply how it, how it mm. works. But obviously they're very fantastical worlds and fantastical stories. But this, on the other hand, is, is so, so personal, so intimate. Was this a, a, a handbrake turn for you as a, as a producer? Or did you approach it, approach it in a different way? Or is it actually a lot more similar than perhaps the likes of us who listen to this stuff that we may be aware? That's the difference, isn't there? I've done a couple of... Uh, a story is a story, I suppose well, many would say. Sometimes, especially if you're doing, um, you know, audios or, or, you know, whatever production about a real person, the drama um, element is what sort of hooks you in. And then mm. uh, if you can add a bit of comedy, sprinkle a bit of comedy on top of that, then it's always lovely. But I've um, done a couple of um, imagined scenarios of, you know, uh, not necessarily famous people, but as Stephen said, he came with this originally as a, as a monologue. So it would have just been John Nathan Turner talking. And so that oh, was that was different in itself. If it was a short play, that we could have done that. But just because I wanted it a little bit longer, then obviously Stephen was very happy to let's get you know Gary and so we can bounce off we've got those two characters rather than just the one and and that's what um I think because it's a, a longer audio it holds the the interest in the fact that you can you're then exploring their relationship uh, properly rather than just sort of you know John Nathan Turner's final years there's a Tom Baker quote so I don't know what the quote is exactly but he always said that you know his resurgence in his career was because people that watched him as the doctor had grown into you know jobs where they could then employ him because that's what they they loved and it, there is that element of us who loved you know certain actors or certain series of stuff we get to enjoy being able to say to those people that we absolutely massively admired can you come and do this and then they create something equally brilliant again and you just get to be part of that um rather than you know when you were as a child but as an adult you get to sort of um experience it in a whole new different way so that was you know that's always in the back of your mind a little bit um and that's that's why it's been a joy to work with Stephen and, and chris on this because um having been a fan you you get to experience firsthand what they really truly can bring to everything which is brilliant i just add you know in barnaby's praise i mean he he talked about doing things quickly and i think that is a you know that's a kind of genius in itself not to hesitate and think well hang on a minute i could spend another three or four days thinking about this and, thinking of other people. But if, if a few little things pop into your head and they fit, why, why hesitate? So, I, I mean, I that's what I got off it. And I'm, that's why, although I was a little, yeah, a little nervous about inhabiting John, the kind of synchronicity, spontaneity of the way it came together, which really gave it the, gave it the, you know, the, in, the instant appeal. Does it help that you knew, both gentlemen, you've worked with Stephen before and with Barnaby before, was it helpful that you had confidence in their abilities, in Stephen's words, and Barnaby's skills as well, to give you everything you would need to not have your performance drift into some sort of caricature, to be something that could have truth that you could tap into? It's not so much the experiences of working with people as, as the fact that you, you trust their integrity. I think that's what it was about. Yeah. So it didn't take a lot of talking, really. It just was like, you know, yeah, okay, let's let's do it. And um, yeah, I, I didn't have any hesitation. Really. I mean, Stephen, you know, you can admire people. I admire Barnaby, I admire Stephen. Um, but I, I haven't, you know, worked extensively with either of them, really. And apart from, you know, on the book with Barnaby, and obviously greatest show with Stephen. But that's enough, you know. I mean, how many, how many times do you need to ask yourself whether you like or, or trust or admire a person, you know, once is usually enough. Stephen, earlier on when you, you mentioned this, uh, how the project came to mind, it's it's amusing the fact, the fact that you said you, you just, you were talking to your partner, you'd say, how about this, how about that? I don't know if you're sort of condensing things down to make it a good anecdote or not, but I, probably best that we don't know. But how long, how long did it take <laughs> you to actually, how long did it take you to write the, the entire piece in the end? wasn't very long because the whole press I'm going to say you know if you weren't at the BBC BBC Reddit we would still be discussing the draft or something <laughs> I proposed in March uh, and it would probably be out some point in uh, June 2012 
24. And here we are, I said to Barbie sometime in March, what about it? And here we are, the thing is out and ready and alive, absolutely brilliant. I mean, everybody talks about Joe and T, but for me, almost as interesting writing it was finding out about Gary, because actually, I mean, the, the truth was, and it's said again and again, not many people liked Gary. John was a very popular person. He had lots of friends. Most of them found Gary very, very hard work. He was waspish, um, shall we say, he was not almost appropriate in his behavior towards people. And so I've, to me, one of the big challenges of the piece was trying to find out what made him tick and also what, what was the basis of their relationship. And it was odd because during the time I knew them, I remember going there one day and Gary came in halfway and I was chatting to John and they and said, how did your counseling course go? And I, like many other people go, Gary Downey is doing a counselling course. You know, he was the last person you would think of to have that sort of patience. And I, I said to that point that what that was about in part was that he was starting having to take care of John. The whole power thing had started to shift. John had always been the big producer. Gary was always, you know, the floor manager or the hanger on or whatever. And John was, you know, losing his confidence. He, he'd lost his way. Gary, I think, became much more to the forefront. I mean, he'd obviously always been a very important support for JNT. I think at this point it became much more apparent. So that was something I, I thought was interesting to explore in the piece, that behind all the bitchery and the there was a depth to their relationship and the way they looked after each other, which showed at this point at which they both became seriously ill. And so that's the sort of underlying part of the script that uh, really interested me to explore. And, and so Barnaby's instinct originally to make it into a two-hander was absolutely right. I think it gave whole new dimensions to it. Um, Real opportunity for, for you to, to get into the weeds there as a writer and to yes. not do justice to Gary as such, but to, to expand on our perceptions of who this man who this man was. I think you're right, he, he cuts a bit of a, 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 not a shadowy figure, that's unfair, but he's almost this just this presence. It's John Nathan Turner and Gary Downey. He's also a name on some credits. Uh, John was so flamboyant, so yes. vibrant, very much the showman. I, I went to a couple of conventions where John acted as a kind of master of ceremonies in some respects to certain certain uh, components of the events. I'm not convinced that he'd actually been booked in that capacity at all of them. I think he probably had him one or two, but certainly not all of them. He just took to the floor in a very natural sort of way. I think he enjoyed the spotlight almost as much as uh, as he would have done has he been, had he been an actor or any other. I, I think he just enjoyed, I think he enjoyed the company of other people. Uh, he seemed to feed off the off the energy of people. I think he he seemed to enjoy making people smile too. And I think that when the fans come back to him and, and told him how much they enjoyed what he, what he did at any time in his history on, on the on the show or afterwards, you know, you, you see on pictures, you see his face just just lighting up. Yes, I mean, I think I think, I think there's sort of two things to say about that. I mean, one which is just going back to Gary for the moment on what we're asking, people found him very difficult. You can't write a character unless you understand them. You don't have to think they're great people or they're wonderful people. You just have to find something about what made them tick <laughs> and why this relationship made worked for them. So that was an So but your other point about the showmanship, I mean, I think this is absolutely true. I mean, there's all that stuff about the fact that which I put into the uh, into the play, the deep distrust that the upper management of the BBC had of John because he was a showman. He went off to all these conventions, he promoted the show in a way which at that point nobody did. It was a bit sort of vulgar, a bit sort of naff. I mean, now you can't move for promotions. No. 
<laughs> everywhere in every way possible. But John was very much the pioneer. I mean, opening up the American markets and things like that. And you know, the tragedy was that he he retained those abilities, but after he finished who he really had nowhere to put them of any lasting interest to him or anybody else. To give both Peter and Chris this script, but was it something that you then, you, you didn't just hand it over to them? Was it something that you had, there was a lot of communication between between you all, really, as the project was being was being recorded? Did you adjust much of it along the way, for an example, uh, depending on what Chris was latching onto in his performance? Did it require any refinement along the, along the way from either of you, Chris? Did you find that? No, not really. I, I think it was one of those ones where I just trusted the script. I, I found immediately found the writing was, it's, it's got an intensity about it. It's like little, little shiny little knots that then unravel. And, and uh, yeah, it's got, I just immediately thought, well, I know Stephen can write, you know, for, so, and I, I immediately thought, well, this is, this is cool. The only thing I, I was worried about was, the, as I say, inhabiting John's shoes. I wondered if your memories of working with him and knowing him conflicted at all with Stephen's. I knew Gary when I was 19. I played Flashman in a musical production of Tom Brown's School Days at the Cambridge Theatre in London with, among others, um, Simon Le Bon. And there was this very really? tough, as, as West End uh, dancers tended to be, it's a very, very tough profession. And, you know, you're physically very fit. And Gary was the assistant choreographer. And I remember Gary being, I don't know, he was okay, really. He was tough, you know, he was tough on the kids. He was, but that was the nature of the job. You're, you're there to get get people moving and doing stuff, and he could be pretty difficult. But when I'd also known John when I was fairly young, when he was an AFM, so when they became an item, or I was aware of the fact that they were an item, it was quite a, a shock to me. And I think very often in life you can look at a person and think, "Oh, he's such a sweetie, but what's he doing with that awful so-and-so?" Or, "Oh God, she's lovely, but what earth did she marry him for?" Well, you know, yeah. it's not our, it's not our job to legislate for that. You know, we all know, you know, you what constitutes a relationship can be really quite quite uh, complex and you just have to sort of let it be I think and uh, so I, I was cool with them together I thought they were they were all right. Do you think that John lent on Gary more than anybody could have known either any colleagues of theirs at the time uh, and certainly any fans there was something between them a dynamic between them and that was something that again that yourself and Peter could could latch onto? I personally think that was probably the case you know we were talking you and I were talking earlier about when a when a relationship falls apart, you know, it's not just, you know, the one person and another person, it's the two people together. And even when you don't realize it, you're, you're subconsciously relying on another person's input, their feelings, their opinions, and they're always there to say, hey, I think I might've made a bit of a mistake today. What do you think of this? Or whatever it happens to be. So I think the answer to that question is yes. For all that this is an attempt to sort of, to bring something really, really real and raw and, and something as common as a, a domestic relationship to people's ears. You know, we, we've all been in domestic relationships of one form or another, whether we've been married or not, or in long-term relationships. There's that aspect to it, but there's an inherent dreamlike quality, I feel, to audio drama. I listen to quite a lot of it. Enabling someone such as yourself, Chris, to, to channel all of that and to, and to conjure up something else, something from you, and to embody and communicate their story and, and their characters, tooled with, with, your, with your words, Stephen, you know, and then offer it to an audience through Barnaby's production. And we as listeners, what we bring is the balance, uh, pictures that we, we all see a different production in our heads to whatever it is that we're, we're listening to. And I suppose it's the same, whether it's some big expansive fancy drama or something like this, uh, a two-hander. But what I wanted to ask really to you, Barnaby, is a story like this actually, does this make for the best audio drama to boil it down to what it's really good at? Yeah, it's the intimacy, isn't it? I was going to say earlier about Stephen's uh, script is that it would have been very easy to make the characters black and white. You know, there's the evil Gary and the and the lovely John, and that would, that would have been, you know, some, some other writer may have done that. But the fact that Stephen actually spent time sort 
sporting Gary's character out in his head and, and going, you know, he's not, he wasn't all bad. He was there for a reason. They loved each other. And this is what, you know, this is the sort of relationship that, that they were in and, and they supported each other through those horrendous times, you know, when they were both incredibly unwell and, and John couldn't get another job after Doctor Who. I mean, uh, that's what is fascinating is it's such an intricate intimate script rather than just you know some two big caricatures it's it's the, these real people okay. uh, and with audio because you know you hear those voices you're like a fly on the wall listening to these conversations going on you know within the room that they're supposed to be going on in or within the garden or or what have you and, and that's what's fast the lovely thing about audio is that you can do humongous space operas or you can do you know, World War Two on audio and, and these big things because you're, you know, there's the sound effects and the music and, and your brain will conjure up the images. But then to boil it right back to just these two people speaking and the fact that, you know, you're you're on a journey with them in those last three years of their life, you're, you're it's like you're there with them. And, and that's what that's what this was such a great script. And if you're a Doctor Who fan, you know what's going to happen at the end, obviously, in a, in a bizarre way, but um, but you don't know how you're going to get there. So uh, and and hopefully it'll bring you know a little bit more understanding about that um, era that, where John clearly was lambasted by a, a huge group of fans when really all he ever wanted to do was keep the series alive for those people that were lambasting him. So um, brilliant writing. Sometimes it was almost like no acting required, although John was flamboyant and big and all that. It kind of just the writing informed the performance to such an extent that it, I just found it relatively not easy, but you know, and, and the parts where he, he's you know, I was I was completely choked up at doing the tricky stuff. I didn't have to say, Oh, this is the bit where I cry. I was genuinely moved by saying these words that are with the memories of John, this this flamboyant, you know, lover of life and, and uh, phenomenal person in the back of my head and you're playing this these very very sad moments which are beautifully written i kind of just had to inhabit the script really rather than interpret it stephen what do you enjoy the most yeah. about writing this kind of work because it does sound somewhat theatrical as well you've written a lot of theater too so what do you get out out of this obviously there's a factor to exploring a relationship between two people you knew pretty well that must have been a bit of a journey of discovery for for you two in that respect what do you get out of of this kind of work as a writer what are the disciplines that it well, demands i mean i'm very fond of radio i've done radio from this small all the way through i mean my craziest project ever is i i did dante's the divine comedy in three parts for uh, radio four which was just insane you know are you, are you really going to do this? We did, and it was fantastic. I loved it. And I think what I'm saying is that the, the key thing for me about radio is you just have to remember it's taking place inside your head, not in front of your eyes. The way in which people complete it for themselves is very different. And in fact, that is its power. There is an extra element. Listening to audio drama is a, is a much more okay, people do sit around together. But by and large, it's a much more intimate experience. But, it's uh, not, it's it, not as passive as television, is it? Because it does it does demand something from the uh, listener it, more. Yes, it requires you to become involved. I say, it, it, it's inside your head, what, what you're taking in. You are completing it in a way. It's a hard playhouse, isn't it, between reading a book and seeing a, a film or t TV, because you... The words are all being done for you, but the, but the pictures you have to fill in for yourself. Compared with, say, television or film writing, radio drama writing is more like poetry. You're, you're, you, you have to use words very evocatively, very economically, because you've got nothing else to work with. And therefore, you're requiring other people then to the listener to complete and participate in a way that they don't have to if they're just sitting watching something. Is that for them? You're quite happy for them to have that. Whatever they've got in their heads is in their heads. Your part of the well, job is done. I think so. I mean, like, you can't anyway control what people make of things. I mean, even if it's a television show, you know, people will look at it and some people will love it, some people will hate it. If you actually really want to control your vision, you better write a book. Exactly. When people come back to you about your, the audio work that you've done and they say, oh, I, I imagined it like this or like that or like the other. 
see things that what I'm saying is that that you would never have have imagined on occasion I've not had that too much I mean the thing is you have to be very careful in audio drama because a lot of things are more horrible than they would be if you actually saw them I mean let me give you an example I, I did some adaptations of um, Patricia Highsmith's Ripley books and in one scene Ripley has to fish a rotting corpse out yeah. of a pond and drag it across the floor. And honestly, in radio, all this meant was a sack being pulled across the studio for with a little <laughs> bit of But I'm prepared to bet that was infinitely scarier than any visual representation you would ever I mean, even when we were doing it, we were going, oh my God, this is gross. But in fact, there was very little happening. You have to, in a way, to be more economical with how you use sound as well as word, or like poetry. It's more, has to be more controlled, more economical. Your trust yeah. in Chris and Barnaby to, to bring their elements into play and to create a, a full audio drama that you can all be proud of art for the ears i think you, could, you can safely say and there's more art for the ears now just for a couple of minutes it's time for us to check in with our mate kev he's standing by as always with a portfolio full of podcasts that cover all your favorite franchises all part of the fandom podcast network you're going to love this this trip sideways in time there'll be more from them and me on him and it coming up in a couple of minutes don't go away Thank you for listening. We hope you're enjoying this podcast. Here are the other great shows on the Fandom Podcast Network. Culture Clash, where we discuss the latest in entertainment and pop culture. Blood of Kings, our show covering the entire Highlander universe. Couch Potato Theater, we celebrate our favorite movies. And Time Warp, our Fandom Flashback show discussing a year in movies and our favorite retro movie, TV, and pop culture topics. Good evening, discussing all things Alfred Hitchcock. Hair Metal Podcast. We cover the rock metal music of the 80s and early 90s. Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast discussing the time-traveling Doctor Who universe. Lethal Mullet, an action film podcast covering the 80s, 90s, and beyond. Also, check out the Lethal Mullet Network for more great podcasts. What a Piece of Junk, our Star Wars podcast. Making Treks, a Star Trek podcast with a deep dive into the final frontier. The Fandom Show. Our Fandom Podcast Network live YouTube show discussing the hottest topics in fandom. The True Believers MCU Podcast discussing the Marvel Cinematic and Television Universe. Union Federation, our Star Trek and the Orville show. And we're proud to welcome the BQN Network to the Fandom Podcast Network. Please visit our friends on the BQN Network, a Star Trek Universe podcast that also includes your favorite topics, movies, history, superheroes, and more. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on YouTube. The Fandom Podcast Network is also on all major podcast platforms. The Fandom Podcast Network audio master feed is on Podbean at fpnet.podbean.com. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can email us at fandompodcastnetwork at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and remember, respect others and enjoy your fandom. Yes, we've teased and tantalized you there, and we can even clothe you too. There's merch to match all of those shows, including Type 40, if you head over to tpublic.com. Search for the Fandom Podcast Network, and you'll find a store full of all the team colors for all of those shows on everything from T-shirts to phone cases and enormous tapestries. Uh, treat yourself, treat your other selves, and it all goes to support the Fandom Podcast Network into the bargain so everybody wins. We're, we're still here lodged as I talk to my guests Steve and Chris and Barnaby as we preview their brand new audio drama, Me and Him and Who. This story, I can't imagine it could ever be told in this way on any other medium your relationships with Jay and Tim, and particularly yours, Chris and Stephen, who, who knew the guy, obviously are very, very different. But it sounds like they didn't necessarily necessarily conflict. What I was wondering, though, is what Jay and T himself would have made of all of this. It's now 20 years since he passed away. We talked about the, the mythology surrounding Doctor Who and how it seems to have sort of 
dogged your career a little, <laughs> Stephen. And it's something that you've you've uh, been surprised by too there, Chris. And Barnaby as a fan, it's there, isn't it, throughout your life, isn't it, sort of as a, as a constant companion. But what do you think J&T would have would made of it all, all this time on? The answer that I'm not absolutely sure, but I, I do feel that the thing you have to try and be as honest and faithful to the people you knew as you can possibly be. You know, my hope would be that John and Gary would recognise Lewis' truth in the way in which we've depicted them. Because I say, you know, on one level... Do you think he'd be amused and flattered or or feel a little bit exposed at first? or what, what do you think? Well, I hope he'd be flattered first of all, because it would be just simply that he, he, he is remembered and people still have a sense of who he was and what he did. So I would hope so. Um, it's very difficult to know, isn't it, if any of us are confronted with um, something written about us by somebody else, we would have probably have mixed feelings about it. Yeah. I think John wanted to carry on, as we, as we can tell from the play, and I think he hated being sick. I mean, he yes. did drink a lot, and as a lot of people around the BBC, you know, and theatre and everything else did in the 70s and into the 80s, it was a it was more prevalent than it is now and it was more acceptable to be oh what should we do at lunchtime oh we're going to have a few drinks and i i think he did in a rock and roll way really use you know use booze quite a lot to drive him forward to get him through the difficult moments to give him courage in that respect i, I don't i don't what i'm saying is i don't really think he would personally particularly celebrate the way his life turned out but i do think he would completely understand and admire the way that Stephen has been very honest and truthful about about it, I think it has the quintessence of it is is very, uh, yeah, it's all there. It's all because there. he did have other ideas and other projects that he was not desperate to to get into production, but was certainly very 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 keen to get the wheels moving on. He wasn't just a one trick pony, was he? he? Had other ambitions. He was very young to be kind of retired, pensioned off by the BBC in some respects. You can see why it was hit him, hit him as hard he, as it did. He was an impresario, really. He had a theatrical yeah. impresario's nature about him, which did like, you know, in the corridors of Threshold House where people could be quite shoulders round and, you know, I don't know, just not not as expansive as John. Even, even directors like Herbie Wise, and Alan Bridges, all these great TV directors I had the pleasure to work with. I mean, they, they, none of them and the producers as well. I can't remember anybody who had that theatricality as much as John did. It was singular. And those qualities, as, as you described there, Chris, and everything that you said earlier on there, there, Stephen, do you think, Barnaby, that someone like Gary, we talked about the fact that Gary moved into counselling, which I'm sure he didn't take that on lightly either, but do you think that he would have perhaps found it easier to move on than someone like John could. I get the impression that John felt there was a lot of unfinished business. And if not resentment, resentment, sorry, then, then perhaps uh, something that needed to be proven. Whereas Gary, it was perhaps a little cleaner for him. Yeah, I think um, you can tell, because having been at that position, you would assume that you would be able to get, you know, your next project off the ground um, uh, with you know you wouldn't have to take a step down to do stuff and i think that's what clearly what john found difficult for is that he couldn't get things off the ground that he expected would be quite easy sort of to do so because he, he did bridge that gap between theater and between television so he did do theatrical stuff and even there it, you know he couldn't just go straight back into that and do because you have to raise finances and etc cetera, etc cetera. i just think it's um sad that he didn't uh wasn't able to stick around long enough to see the, the resurgence of Doctor Who because the, or everything that came out with the new Doctor Who would have been the type of things that he would have encouraged to promote the show, to, to keep it alive, to keep it in everybody's minds. I mean, it's clear that Russell T. Davis, you know, had one eye on that sort of period that, that John uh, produced the show because um, it, he has all of that you know, special guest, you know, big name guest stars, get, yeah. you know, writers that are good at what they do. Let's promote it as much as we can, link it in with this, that, and the other. I mean, it's it's just, it's sort of classic John Nathan Turner, isn't it, really? Um, even down to the fact that he's got three initials in his name as well. <laughs> I don't think he did that on purpose. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I think it has, John had something which was not a strength. It was that he was not great with scripts and ideas for scripts. He was very much 
a doer and a maker and I, I was very lucky because when I worked on the show, I was working with the new script editor then, Andrew Cartmore. They were like chalk and cheese, he and John. John was flamboyant, big picture. Andrew was quite reserved, quirky, and an absolutely brilliant script editor. They, they worked terribly well together. I mean, John was always incredibly encouraging to us about the scripts left us to get on with it really and then when we, we we were going he he would make it work i still blink at this uh, but it's actually confirmed by the production diaries on paradise towers i wrote the first drafts of episodes two three and four in six days i still don't believe it Wow. Uh, I mean, I had a whole week to do episode one, and then they sort of commissioned <laughs> it. I'd written the end of episode one, not knowing what the hell was going to happen in episode two, um, just to get the job, because John had not expected to carry on. The, the, the script pile was pretty low, and so I was being pushed forward. But primarily, I was supported as a writer by Andrew. But John, you know, just always kept his nerve. We were going in a very different direction from the direction before. He never stopped it. He always said, yeah, let's give it a try. He was a great enabler, I would say, rather than an original thinker. And that's probably why it was so difficult for him after he left Who. If only they, you know, somebody had given him some projects when he could use that incredible energy and invention and fun it would have been great, but he was stuck as a one-horse pony. He was a Doctor Who man. We talked earlier on at the, at the top of the show about historical figures and the idea of JNT as being an historical figure. Chris, this is somebody that you knew from when you were very, very young, both uh, John and Chris, and here we are talking about them as historical figures. The legacy of people who have made music, film, television, or sporting moments, or any, any of those sort of big cultural touchstones in people's lives this legacy is a mix of how they are received and perceived as well as their own lives and the way they conducted themselves with their friends and colleagues aren't they what do you feel we can learn from from john and gary's story i have a real problem with um history um and and the word legend and all this stuff we seem to be living in an age where it's oh we're making history or we're this is I mean history is just you know as I've tried to explain to somebody in a succinct way is just the retrospective organization of chaos in other words it's easy after the event to say hey you know let's have a ceremony and let's do that's rubbish it's all about the life you know when Stephen's talking about hey you've got you know a week to get this sorted or you you know the pressure's on you don't have time you know it's like a an animal that's got to kind of catch something for its kids to eat you know we don't have time they don't have time to think hey i'm making history killing this squirrel they just don't work like that <laughs> so my attitude to it is you know that john is the, the life messy chaotic that's what's interesting and that's what i think comes out of this piece and i i if i was asked to write a a historical tome about John Nathan Turner, I wouldn't have a clue. Unless it was just going to be full of bullshit, you know. <laughs> well, what I'm, what I'm saying is it's one, for, one thing for us to read things into fantasy, whether they were things that the writer intended or not, allegories or whatever else, or things that we apply like years, decades later, that's, that's different. When we're talking about something that is so in, intimate, a person's life and their day-to-day -day relationship, that balance there's something that we're all going to be able to see in this and, and it needn't necessarily be about anything big and creative but some something as personal as the way they related to one another the way they supported to one another the way they communicated as uh, you, i think did you use the word waspish earlier on Stephen? because somebody may be waspish <laughs> yeah that just because somebody may appear just because somebody may appear a certain way yeah. Uh, be quite foreboding or unapproachable almost it may not necessarily mean that they're that they're a bad person or that they don't want anybody close to them or near them it, that's the kind of thing i'm pointing to wasps have a bad um have had wasps yeah, the actual wasps yes. i love that word but wasps have had a very bad press up until relatively recently 
and they are, you know, they are pollinators. I don't think the word waspish is so bad, really, but it, Gary should have a, you know, it should be Gary Waspish Downey because nobody mentions the word Gary Downey without saying waspish. Really? In my experience. I was just going to say, you know, going back, I think we, we should mention, because both Barnaby and I are extraordinarily grateful to Richard Marson, who wrote the, a fantastic biography of John Nathan Turner, warts and all. I mean, I think he gets it all there. I mean, incredibly impressive. He does, It's a very open-minded book. You can go from people who adored John to people who couldn't stand John. It's incredibly fair-minded and open, and he was very, very supportive to us from the start. Uh, for me, I don't know whether for you, Barnaby, I think one of the most um, exciting things was when uh, Richard King kept, wrote to us that he'd actually thought we'd got it. He actually mm. thought we had managed to nail something about John and Gary. I'll say, yeah, because you're taking all the, the sort of facts and or the minute that he put into that book, but you're then creating something bigger out of it, which Stephen did. But yeah, Richard did, uh, he did listen to it and he did email and say some lovely things. I, I do remember ages ago when he started, now published by a different company, but the original company, um, I was supposed to do a biography of somebody else. And um, the company sent me a screenshot of all of the folders that Richard Marston had for his uh, biography of John Nathan Turner and said, there's how you do a biography. That's how much detail you need. Do you still want to do one? I went, uh, I don't think so, actually. No, you, you carry on. It's fine. Because this sheer amount, the volume of work and research that, that you know, that he put in, or that you do, and, and you can see it because it creates a, a brilliant biography. It's not just, uh, oh, let's just grab some press cuttings and, and, and write around them and et cetera, et cetera. It, I mean, it's just, it is a fascinating biography because it, it explores so much and, and tells you so much. But the fact that, you know, Stephen could take that, that all those moments and then create this realistic relationship that, I mean, you know, it, it's an assumed um, three years of what happened. It's not, you know, we, we weren't there, we don't know, but I mean, Stephen and, and knew John enough to be able to, to do that. I did give the script to somebody that knew uh, John really well, um, who just wanted to read it. And the first thing he said was that it was almost upsetting because he could hear their voices so well um, just reading the script. That's exactly what you want to hear that for the writing and, and knowing that the actors will be able to bring that into the recording. So that, um, yeah, so I mean, Richard Marson, his book is, is uh, fantastic. And the fact that he endorsed this and, um, and liked what we did in the end um, is, is a lovely thing. As a huge fan of not just Doctor Who, but I grew up with the John Nathan Turner era. I'm fascinated by him. I, I did meet him briefly, a few times in fact, and he's always had this aura about him. I've always been interested in reading and listening to anything I possibly can about him and this project in particular. As, as I make my way through life, it also has that sort of that duality to it so i'm interested in it in that respect too and i, I wonder what i will learn not just about about him but about the way the way to to treat others or, or how not to treat others i don't know but i can't wait to hear it obviously Stephen, you're you're still very creative still and still writing all these years after doctor you said 35 years ago you first wrote for the show but what projects have you got coming up in 2023 the other thing i've done this year which i'm very pleased with which is also doctor who related apart from this is a book of short stories which others press have brought out called the wall scholar and other stories a part of which are doctor who related stories and that was very exciting for me because that's my collected short stories to date i think they will be of interest to people who are who like doctor who at least i hope so that's my plug done along with <laughs> i've just acquired my uh, own eagle moth model of the robot cleaner so which is in private the white, the white, like the white one yes absolutely i mean i can bring it out and show you please do how, how could we possibly re oh he's skipping off look <laughs> see we yeah, love this on this show Stephen. <laughs> since we started doing video tracks people do this to us all the time so show us what it is you've got what did you have for christmas <laughs> That wasn't for Christmas. That was so. Uh, so, what have I got coming up? Well, it, it, it's sort of stuff under wraps. I've got two major projects I'm waiting for the uh, go ahead on, and I don't really want to talk about them because it just jinxes it. And I think we're going to. We did a 
a volume of uh, Paradise Towers related stories for Obverse, and I think we're going to be doing a new one of those. <laughs> Christopher, you seem to be seizing every opportunity, but what does 2023 hold for you can you tell us about anything you've got coming up anything you're involved in? well there's a couple there's a couple of things i know it's the lamest answer in the world but i'd probably rather not talk about um one of one of them might just involve barnaby jones but i don't want to talk about him I so um it's, it's something not unrelated to what we're talking about now this is like charades or thinking of people or, or spies isn't it? so well, i spy with my little light no and so that's one thing there, there was a movie i worked on I started working on years ago. I was originally um, sort of music. A couple of tracks I recorded quite a while ago, band numbers, are on this movie. And then I got involved as an associate producer as well. It was an indie film called Mercy, directed by Wendy Morgan. And so that's interesting. It's been a while getting it finished. And then, of course, there's my book, which Barnaby published, and there's going to be an online... What's your, book, what's your book called? Where can people get it from? And Well, make sure all the links are in the show notes in the description anyway, but go and wave it around a bit so people can have a look. Okay, so this is this is the, the pre-order edition, which was personally signed, and it's not going to be exactly like this. It's slightly different because there's one or two pictures we might have some, you know, possible uh, copyright problems with, but that's it. Yeah. It's called And Then It Was Now, and it's a kind of a ragtag kind of patchwork of my life in no particular order, but it does have an inner logic, which of course is essential to any piece of writing. You can pretty well write the craziest twaddle you like, as long as it has an inner logic. If my life ever had an inner logic, here it is. Oh dear. And I was gonna say last but last but not least is Barnaby Eaton Jones. <laughs> who I know yeah. you're in between recording sessions to come just to speak to us now. Where yeah. would you even start in boiling down the projects that you've probably got coming? What can you tell us about? No, I was impressed by the uh, the book waving going on. So whilst they, whilst they were doing that, yeah. I felt I should... So, goodies. So I, very well, so that's still available at all goodies bookshop. What's the premise? One, it's, it's a, well, I'm going to read it off the back because uh, it's funnier than I can say. Um, it says there was an idea to bring together a group of remarkable people to see if they could become something more. It didn't work out. In fact, the goodest superhero talent agency is rapidly running out of steam, which certainly isn't going to make Iron Man's life any easier. Clearly, it's time for Graham, Bill and Tim to cut out the middleman, fire up the trandom, and become heroes themselves. What could possibly go wrong? And it's from the uh, team who didn't quite bring you uh, Fifty Shades of Graham, which um, is a <laughs> spankingly different book. Um, no, it's, a, it's an official goodies adventure. The, the, um, the estate of Timber Taylor and, and Graham Gardner Bilotti said that I could um, novelize these audio scripts that we were originally going to do before Tim passed away. Um, and so these are all coming out slowly. And they look like old Doctor Who target books. And that's, we've purposefully done that <laughs> to, um, to evoke nostalgia as well. Um, but yeah, so that's that's still out, and there's a new one coming out in a couple of days' time. So uh, that's quite exciting. As Chris sort of hinted at, there might hopefully be a, a project uh, for the three of us again. Fingers crossed. If we can, uh, you know, mm. once we've had a little discussion and stuff, we do, it might it might happen. It might not. I don't know. We'll we'll, we'll be discussing it, and um, we'll see what happens. But um, so that that would be quite exciting if we can get to do that. But uh, aside from that, I just, yeah. It's yeah, I guess it will happen. So it, so it will happen. <laughs> so um, yeah, Stay so that's, tuned, uh, everybody. And then, and there's lots of other stuff coming out. Very much like Chris and Stephen, I've got various things that uh, it, it come back to us all in six months' time, and we'll be able to talk about more. <laughs> <laughs> so. I may have to hold you to that. Me and him and who is written by Stephen Wyatt. It stars Peter Noble and Christopher Gard, with sound designed by Joseph Fox. Music by Daryl McLean. It's out now on CD from AUK Studios as a limited edition with a digital release coming in mid-2023, it says here, Barnaby. Yeah. Any any day now then, any day now. There's links in the show notes and the video description there as to where you can get it, where you can read more and possibly, yeah, yeah, pre-order. Get it in your life by whichever means suits you. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time and the best of luck with this audio drama and everything else that you've got coming up. It's a unique project. I, I'm just really pleased that you were able to come here and talk to us about it. Barnaby and Jones, Christopher Gard and Stephen Wyatt, thank you very much for your company this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. 
Stephen Wyatt's two classic stories, they're still out on DVD. 1987's Paradise Towers and 1988's The Greatest Show in the Galaxy there. Yes, so uh, thanks again to Barnaby, to Stephen and to Christopher for a fantastic conversation. I can't wait to hear this. And uh, yeah, please let us know what you think of it all too. But that's the, that's the old girl starting up and calling time on another Type 40. I'll be back with another one soon. Of course, I will look out for that wherever you found this. It could have been at the dedicated home feed for Type 40 over at type40.podbean.com. Maybe we rolled up on the podcatcher of your choice. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music. That's the newest one, isn't it? Tune in, Google, all those places. And we're still on the fabulous Fandom Podcast Network's own master feed along with all those other shows. Loaded up with so many geeky treats for your ears, never mind on the weekly. It's coming at you on the daily. So please consider a trip sideways in time for more quality shows from the FPN. And maybe you'd like to have your say about all of this. You can do just that. Reach out to us through our social media, Instagram and Twitter, at Type40DoctorWho, about this conversation or the audio drama. I'm sure that the guys would love to know what you what you think about it. We'll pass it all on. Email Type40DoctorWho at gmail.com. And if you're feeling really brave and fancy some real-time, extra-dimensional chit-chat, come step into the Type40 Facebook group and hang out with regenerations upon regenerations worth of Doctor Who fans from the classic era and the new era. And most of all, I think at the moment, we're speculating, looking forward to what's to come in all new Doctor Who and that 60th anniversary special that we also know so little about, shrouded in mystery. All we know at the moment is that we've got, we've got David Tennant, we've got Catherine Tate, we've got Neil Patrick Harris. Who knows what's about to be revealed for the, for the eyes and the ears there you can find me on social media over on instagram and twitter as the space book where i'm wheezing and groaning ranting and raving about all things geeky inside and outside of the tardis even real life now and again when i absolutely have to but yeah that's it for another one we always have the time if you have the space here at type 40 you take care we'll speak to you again soon bye bye Thank <laughs> you.